Hello, you're listening to Culture Call, a transatlantic conversation from the Financial Times. I'm Griselda Mari Brown in my house in London. And I'm Lila Raptopoulos, still in my apartment in New York. <laughs> Coming up on today's episode. Even in what we all might consider our most ideal circumstances, there are always constraints on our cooking. It might be time, it might be space, it might be which ingredients we have. There's always some sort of constraint. This is just a very, very, very extreme one. But what we all have so much more of is time. Today's guest is the inimitable chef, Samin Nosrat, who is author of the best-selling cookbook, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, and host of the Netflix series, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. (laughs) She has just come out with a limited podcast series called Home Cooking, which answers people's questions about what to cook at home during this period of quarantine. And it's uh, really delightful and a welcome break, honestly. Can we please talk about how excited we both are about having Samin on the show? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Feels like it's been... A long time coming. Um, Yeah. When we spoke about you joining the podcast about a year ago, um, I think Samin was the first person on your list of people when we said, who do you think we should have on the show? (laughs) She was number one. Yeah. I mean, her work has unquestionably shifted culture forward. And like, that's what we're all about. And I was just off of the back of having read her book. And it was like such a help to me that I felt like everybody needs some time with Samin. <laughs> and, you know, it's a strange circumstance in which to interview her. Like, the conversation isn't the one I expected we'd be having a year ago when I pitched this. But it also feels like, you know, it's a good time, actually. Yeah. She really knows how to communicate about food, and she's extremely open and warm. And these things are all a service to us right now. Yeah, I mean, the world is in turmoil, but at least we can give our listeners 30 minutes with Samin. Lila, maybe we shouldn't get excited about something as mundane as an online form, but um, the feedback form that you created seems to have been quite a hit with listeners. Yeah, it's the little things these days that are really getting us through. Yeah, um, basically we wanted to make it even easier for you guys to share your thoughts about what is getting you through this time. And uh, so we created this form and it's been really great to hear from all over the world. Yeah, it's nice when ideas work out like that. (laughs) It really is. And we're going to have some of those at the end of the show after the conversation with Samin. But the place to find that form is ft.com slash culture callout. We especially appreciate your voice notes. It's really fun to hear what you all sound like. You can attach those to the form too, or you can email them to us at culturecall at ft.com. This is a lot of information um, and all of it is in the show notes. So that's the place to go. Um, We also still have the listener survey open. Uh, It's closing soon. So that's the place where you can tell us your thoughts on Culture Call, what's working and what isn't for you so that we can make the show as good as it can be even from our homes. Also, you have a chance to win a pair of Bose wireless headphones. The link is in our show notes, ft.com slash culture call survey. Um, Mary, if you're listening, you can only enter once. It is illegal to <laughs> enter under a pseudonym. <laughs> Mary's your sister, right? Mary is my sister, and she's threatening to derail the survey by entering it too many times. Because <laughs> she's loving those headphones? Yeah, I think it's more about the headphones than wanting to improve the show, sadly. <laughs> So we've been under lockdown for a few weeks now. Yeah. I feel weirdly like I'm getting used to it. Um, And yet also like time has kind of been suspended and none of it is really real, you know, which is is a strange feeling. Lila, how are you finding it? 
Yeah, I mean, ask me every 20 minutes and I'm feeling a little bit differently, but I definitely <laughs> yeah. am finding myself adjusting to a different lifestyle and that feels um, kind of unbelievable. It's strange to think that this is the new normal. Mm-hmm. And, and so what have you been doing since we last spoke? Grizz, I have a new pet. I adopted a sourdough starter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should just rewind a little bit. <laughs> For people who don't know... What is a, sta- a sourdough starter? Oh, <laughs> how dare anyone not know a sourdough starter? Yeah, so um, sourdough starter is like fermented dough that's filled with like wild yeast, like yeast that gets collected from the air. And it's basically this blob of yeasty dough that you add into more dough to make bread rise. So it's like a living organism, right? Very Hence much so, why yeah. You're, why you're referring to it as a pet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to like move it to warm places in the home and feed it once or twice a day. That and my plants are the few living things in my apartment alongside me. Um, and I don't know what to do with it, but I'm feeding it and it hasn't died or gone moldy or whatever. So yeah, I'm going to try to make my first loaf soon. So you're going to eat your pet is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thanks for making that morbid for me. I really appreciate that. <laughs> The other thing I wanted to mention, Grizz, was that I feel like my relationship to my neighborhood has really changed, Hmm. um, especially to my local businesses. In the U.S., essential shops um, are open in limited ways and non-essential shops can't be open, but they still have online ordering and delivery. Mm. So basically, I feel like this time has interrupted business as usual, partially because delivery from big box stores is really slow right now, especially anything to New York, Um, but also... I just like really don't want to support Amazon where I don't have to right now. Yeah. (laughs) Like we both have to and we kind of get to rethink things we previously would have done thoughtlessly. And I definitely used to do thoughtlessly. Mm. So I'm finding that like I've contacted people on Instagram or phone for things I would usually just thoughtlessly buy on Amazon. Things like bread flour and paint for my kitchen cabinets and a book and a Dutch oven and just like... (laughs) It's been this like nice experience of having a conversation with the owner, finding out how they're doing, placing an order. Mm. Um, And I'm seeing the other side of it through my sister who lives very close to me and she has a gift store in Brooklyn. Um, It's called Awesome. And she's really struggling right now. So the thing that's been sort of a sleeper hit for her and something that people have been able to support her with is um, buying puzzles. That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) She's like getting these puzzle shipments in of 50 to 100 puzzles to her apartment and then putting them on our website and letting her customers know on Instagram. And then they're selling out in hours. (laughs) And her customers are saying that like her puzzle shipments are like the new Supreme drops. (laughs) And it's their way of like supporting her, having somebody to connect around. They're like posting when they finish the puzzle. They're buying second, third puzzles. Um, So I don't know. These things, they make me feel like we're all kind of off the treadmill right now Mm. there's this very funny netflix special with ronnie chang actually you should watch (laughs) um and one of the uh and one of the portions of it that i keep thinking about is him making fun of amazon now and just being like amazon now like i need it now like i need the amazon guy to come to my house and put it in my mouth and shove it down my throat like i need it now and that's how i feel like (laughs) i wasn't even like realizing that i was that person and until suddenly um uh, now is not an option. And like, we're fine. Yeah, it's like we're all that demanding, horrible toddler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this interruption has given us a little bit of a chance to think about where our money goes. You know, we're also like probably all being more careful with our money. A lot of us are losing work. 
And so mm. when we do have a chance to support somebody, like, where can we do that? Yeah, it's true. We're being more, well, everything's slowed down, you know, for lots of people. Yeah. And so we're sort of thinking more about what we do, uh, where we spend our money. So, Grizz, what have you been up to? Well, you know, last week we spoke about um, the fact that we were finding it difficult to focus on reading and, and focus on lots of things, actually, just because of feeling generally distracted. Yeah. Since we spoke, I've been looking for something to get me out of this rut. And I thought maybe I should just try something completely different. Mm. So I started reading Wolf Hall by Hilary Mantel. Have you ever read it? Oh, I, I haven't read it, actually. I've wanted to. How is it? Yeah, I mean, I've kind of wanted to as well for a long time, but sort of never picked it up. It's a big book. It's like, you know, 700 pages or something, um, which mm. is perhaps why I had never picked it up until now. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's about the rise of Thomas Cromwell and the court of Henry VIII. And it's also the first book in a trilogy. And actually, there's been lots of buzz about Hilary Mantel recently because the third volume just came out a few weeks ago called The mm. Mirror and the Light. It's kind of amazing, actually, that like a 900-page novel would be top of the bestseller list. But, <laughs> wow. I mean, such is Hilary Mantel's um, uh, readership. But it's funny because I always thought like I didn't like historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I can say now, I think I was just being a bit snobby about it. You know, actually, <laughs> I think I do like it. <laughs> I was wrong. Her writing is so rich and detailed. You can just really sink into it. For me, it's been a really good book to be reading now. You always talk about how you don't like plot. Yeah. Or you like books with no plot. <laughs> I like, well, I mean, until now, I liked books and <laughs> And films also that are quite plotless. Like, I, that's something that appeals to me. Yeah. But, but yeah, basically, I mean, I am recommending Wolf Hall, although I'm aware that probably most people listening have already read it. So what I'm really <laughs> recommending is books with plot. Yeah. <laughs> it turns out a plot is, a, is no bad thing. Um, and it can really sort of take you out of the present moment. I feel like a page turner right now is a gift. Yeah. People who are writing page turners, it's like, that is a public service right now. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Um, my second recommendation is Christine and the Queens, the singer. Mm. So I've been listening to her new EP, La Vita Nova, um, and watching her performances on Instagram Live. Um, I was supposed to see her perform in London last month, but it was cancelled, obviously, because of coronavirus, which is pretty gutting because I really love her. Um, yeah. So instead, she did this performance in her apartment in Paris all alone on Instagram Live. That's so cool. Yeah, it was amazing. It was one of the first Instagram lives that I've watched in this kind of lockdown. And I think because of that, it was quite surreal and kind of actually quite moving. Like she was giving her fans a really good show. She had a, a proper set list. She was dancing. Mm. She's an incredible singer and dancer. And it made me feel actually kind of like, OK, well, we can't have her in person. But maybe one thing that this time is kind of giving us is revealing who the really, truly talented people are out there. Like, if you can give this <laughs> yeah. kind of no-frills performance with, like, no backing dancers, no auto-tune, you can't hide. And if you're still really good, it's like, okay, well, that's something, you know? Even more impressive, yeah. Yeah. And you'd recommend the EP? Yeah, it's really good. So it's funny because it, she obviously made it before all of this happened and it came out just before... But it feels quite emotionally in tune with the moment, I think. Hmm. The first track on it, it sort of opens with this track called People I've Been Sad, which is, you know, really about kind of missing out on life and feeling kind of dislocated and separate and and also kind of feeling like you're slipping away and someone's slipping away from you and you're kind of disappearing. There's something about it that feels that if you listen to it now, it feels like it's about now. 
I think the thing that I really like about Christine and the Queens is like in her music, she wears her vulnerability quite openly. Like she's very strong and she's very defiant, like even in the kind of these quite masculine clothes that she wears and the way that she moves. But then she's also quite fragile and quite raw. She kind of does both of those things, which feels, I don't know, it makes her feel like a good artist for this moment. Anyway, um, basically, I can recommend that if you're looking for something to listen to. It's also excellent to dance to, you know, if you're making dinner in the kitchen or whatever. Great. I love watching her dance. I'm going to follow her. Okay. Samin Nosrat. Yeah. I mean, we wanted to have Samin because so much of what we've been discussing about um, and thinking about and doing right now revolves around food. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Lila, but Tom and I at home have been trying to kind of limit how often we go to the shop. Yes. So basically we do a, a weekly food shop for the first time ever, really. I've never been organized to do this before um, <laughs> and make proper meal plans, buy in bulk, buy big quantities of things, yeah. eat leftovers for lunch, you know, rather than just like going to the corner shop every single day after work, which is what I was previously doing. Mm-hmm. It seems like that's what everyone's doing. You know, even in in the bit of the, the FT that I work for, the weekend magazine, we're running this new series called bunker food which is like you know food writers um writing about exactly this kind of cooking under these new constraints and it feels like almost everybody's cooking more food is kind of another version of therapy right now it feels to me like a welcome preoccupation and like also it's literally how we nourish and Mm. how we comfort and how we survive food has like so many connotations and so much meaning and so much depth and now we have more time and we have fewer options and the perfect person to speak about this with is Samin Nosrat. So can you say a bit about why you think she's the perfect person like who is Samin Nosrat? Yeah, so the Cliff's Notes of Samin's story is that she was an English major at UC Berkeley and she wanted to be a poet. Huh, I didn't know that. Yeah, and while she was in college, she went to have a meal at Chez Panisse, which is like one of the eminent restaurants in California and the world, honestly. I, I say honestly as if I actually know. I only know because of her interviews. <laughs> Um, I mean, it's one of my favorites. <laughs> honestly, yeah, I, I frequent it. Anyway, I've never been there. I passed it once. It looks nice. <laughs> um, anyway, so she had this meal there in college, and she loved it so much that she wrote them a letter, and then they gave her a job as a busser, and then she worked her way up to become a chef. Um And then after leaving the restaurant industry, she spent many years teaching and started working on this book, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. Um, And the point of the book was to break down cooking into these four essential elements um, and help people understand that if you can figure out how to use each of them, you can figure out how to cook for yourself without needing to follow a recipe, sort of like step-by-step ingredient by ingredient. And I think that's kind of what I think of as a good cook, right? Someone who doesn't need to follow a recipe. Good cooks can just look in their fridge and be like, I have a little of that, a little of that. Let me throw it together and like we'll Mm. see what comes out the other (laughs) side. And it's always good. And that's um, a hard thing to figure out how to learn. And so this is a thing that didn't exist, which is not really a cookbook, um, but more of a guidebook, like a how Mm. to cook book. Um, I was thinking about how to frame this and I was thinking, you know, that moment in college or university where you hit a point where you think like, oh, everything's a cultural construct and like everything falls into place. Like there's something you learn and then suddenly like (laughs) all of the random classes you took in high school, like click. Yes. And like learning becomes something that's valuable to you and like fits some greater arc or something like that's how I felt about this cookbook for cooking. Like there aren't Mm. that many recipes. I read it like a book. Um, 
And uh, I felt afterwards like, oh, that's why you use vinegar. Oh, that's why a sear does this, but a bake does that. You know, those sorts of things. Um, I do really need to read this book. <laughs> you need to read it. I'll send it to you. Yes. It makes you resourceful. <laughs> I mean, and that feels like mm. what we need right now. And in the Netflix show, you just like get to know her and she's a joy. But I, w- I would really recommend the Netflix show to anyone who hasn't seen it yet because she's so she's so natural on camera. She's so open. Mm-hmm. She's someone who kind of just turns up and throws herself into any situation anywhere in the world. Or that's how it seems. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't have her guard up. She's completely present. And I think that's, you know, that's what makes the series so good. There's some quite amazing moments where she's like, you know, tasting a pasta sauce in Italy and she looks like she's going to cry. It's so good. Um, She's someone who lives emotionally through food and to be Mm. able to see that on screen is quite amazing. You know, this was an interesting interview because, uh, as you know, we like to do all our interviews in person on Culture Call. And this was my first fully remote interview in this time. I'm from my house to hers, which um, was its own interesting constraint. Yeah, it is an interesting constraint. Maybe interviewing someone in their home when they haven't kind of come into a studio into this foreign space, that can be a good thing. And you get something that's a bit different, I think. Yes. You know, I think that happened here. It felt very um, human. (laughs) So what did you guys talk about? We talked about a few things. One, uh, in Samin's new podcast, Home Cooking, she and her co-host, Rishi Herway, take questions from listeners in their kitchens. And the first episode is almost exclusively about beans. <laughs> My friend Tamar Adler says, you have to taste five beans and they all have to be creamy in the middle. So if you taste five and one's still crunchy, they're not done. Mm. In my opinion, you cannot overcook a bean. Keep going, keep going, keep going. The another thing we talked about was why we're so culturally obsessed with bread. In the first episode of her Netflix show, Samin went to Italy to make focaccia and there's this like orgasmic scene of olive oil and dough and salt <laughs> and rosemary. And it's now amazing. her focaccia, it is amazing. And now her focaccia recipe is being made by what feels like every millennial on the planet. Um, so we talk about that. <laughs> we haven't had a lot of food people on the podcast and we chose her because she's genuinely different. She's a cooking teacher mm. and she connects people and... I wanted to know how she inhabits that role, especially right now. Great. Let's listen. Samin, thanks so much for taking the time for us. Anytime, guys, especially now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So first, I wanted to say that I am relying a lot emotionally on your cookbook these days. (laughs) Thank thank you. you. I'm glad to hear it's helping. Yeah. You know, I felt like my whole life I I was following recipes, but didn't really have the foundation of knowledge that the recipes were adding to or... I was watching my mother cook, but only understood the thing she did as something her mother taught her and not like something with a reason. And so your book felt very revolutionary to me in that I could read it cover to cover and it trusted me to make decisions on my own, like even just saying like, you know, taste it. (laughs) You have a mouth that detects flavor. And that feels especially valuable now. So thank you. That's so awesome to hear. That was really what I set out to do with the book was to empower people. It's like giving you trading wheels so that... uh, you feel like I'm holding your hand and then I let go and you can keep going. So it sounds like it achieved that for you. Yeah. I'm really happy to hear that. I don't spend a ton of time on the internet, but I have, you know, I check Instagram every day and like, Mm -hmm. it's been really awesome to see everyone cooking from the book. And, you know, obviously I could never have pictured anything like this happening, but this is exactly the kind of circumstances that 
it's meant to help you in, which is when mm. everything's not perfect and you don't have everything that you need. Yeah. Before this new world, <laughs> um, I'm curious, like the desire to teach us to cook versus giving us recipes. Where does that come from? Like, I guess, why wasn't it done before in this way? And why do you think that this cookbook resonated the way it did? Listen, that's the same question I was asking all along was why didn't <laughs> someone do this? I remember very clearly as a young cook wishing that something like that existed for me because there was this sort of incredible disconnect in the reality of restaurant cooking and the kind of way that I was learning how to cook, which was in a restaurant kitchen where the dishes we cooked changed every single day. Nobody followed mm -hmm. recipes. Everyone was using whatever ingredients we had, whatever was coming in, cooking with the leftovers, and it all tasted so good. And they all seemed to know how to make anything. And then when I said, oh, how can I learn this? They would refer me to stack of cookbooks that I would go home and read, but reflected nothing that we were doing in the kitchen. Yeah. There was just this major you know, disconnect. And I didn't understand how the two things related. Yeah. So it was really important for me to figure that out and then try to explain that to other people. It took a lot of work. It was a big headache. I rewrote the book probably four times. So yeah. So it wasn't easy, <laughs> but I do think it's very much that whole, you know, um, teach a man to fish kind of thing. Yeah. Even in what we all might consider our most ideal circumstances, there are always constraints on our cooking. Yeah. It might be time. It might be space. It might be which ingredients we have or what preferences the people who are coming over to eat have. So there's always some sort of constraint. I mean, this is the epitome of a constraint that we're in now. This, this is just a very, very, very extreme one. But mm -hmm. what it does is that it opens up other constraints. So right now, our main constraints might be which ingredients we can get. But what we all have so much more of is time. Right. And that's what you see happening with everyone. Everyone's making focaccia. Everyone's making sourdough. Everyone's making lasagna and ragu and braises and all the things that take all day that we don't usually mm. have time for. I think everyone right now is so focused on what we don't have. But what's amazing is seeing the way that everyone is adapting. And I read that for your next cookbook, you're planning to do some reporting. I, I mean, I don't know where that is now, but like see how people with different constraints take on home cooking. I'm curious about that project. Can you tell us a little bit about what the plan for this new book was and maybe how that shifted now? You know, I don't actually feel like the plan is shifting. I feel like this is just an incredible, incredible opportunity for me to pay attention. It's called What to Cook. And the idea is it focuses on Whereas salt, fat, acid, and heat are the four elements of cooking, mm. there are similarly constraints in, in choosing what to cook. So like I said, time is one of them. Often space, like if you have counter space or oven space or stove space yeah. or fridge space, that's another one. Ingredients is another one. Mm -hmm. and, then, and then finally, it's preferences. You know, what you're craving, what you're in the mood for, what your kids will or won't eat, or different people's dietary restrictions. So I think that the premise is if you can figure out which of these constraints is the one that will anchor your meal, then you build your plan around that. Mm. These are the kind of basics that every professional cook has in their mind when they're writing a menu for a restaurant. I think most people just don't really um, understand. I think they think of chefs as like an artist who comes to work every day with a blank you know, canvas and decides what they're <laughs> going to make. But that canvas isn't blank. There are yeah. a lot of limitations in place. 
What time of year is it? Do the customers, will they even eat whatever it is that you make? Mm. The skill level of your various cooks who are coming in. You know, maybe you have somebody new training on the grill and you can't give them a really complicated dish. Those are the things that chefs take into account and they will make your life a lot easier if you also learn to take them account. And I think a really clear example of when this this, uh, this trips people up is Thanksgiving, which is when everyone yes. in the world who doesn't typically cook a lot decides to cook the biggest meal of their lives, <laughs> <laughs> right. you know, and make like 42 side dishes. Yeah. And the problems start, you know, like days before when you start running out of fridge space and then you start mm-hmm. running out of oven space. So yeah. how do we look at our menu and make choices and move things around so that we maximize our different sources of heat? How do we, you know, do our shopping so that we can figure out what can be stored in the fridge and what can be wilted a few days in advance so it takes up less room in the fridge, that kind of stuff. I mean, you have this new podcast, Home Cooking. Like, I love it. And as you're watching everybody adjust to these constraints, um, there's only so much we can get. Or, you know, if there's one thing that you need for a recipe, like that's not something you can run out and grab. I'm wondering what kind of questions you're getting the most, what you're seeing that you're most interested in. Well. I will say what's impressive is creativity. For example, one caller just called in to let us know that she, she, I don't know if it was my recipe, but she was making focaccia and it needed to proof. Right. Her house was very cold. She didn't know what to do. So she put it in the dryer. (laughs) (laughs) So, so that kind of stuff I'm really into where people are thinking outside of their normal, you know, mindset, which I love. I love that kind of stuff. Um. But, you know, it's interesting to me. I always wonder about the podcast because I think for the most part, it's like, how do we have a little bit of human connection? How do we laugh together about this funny predicament that we're in? You know, Mm -hmm. otherwise we would cry. So some of my favorite questions are just super absurd, like super, super, (laughs) super absurd. But I think in their weirdness, totally relatable. (laughs) Right. Can you give one example of an absurd question you've gotten? Probably the weirdest one that has nothing to do with probably anyone's reality is uh, <laughs> somebody called in because she found octopus at the her grocery store and wanted to make it and she had no idea how to cook octopus. And I was like, <laughs> who's cooking octopus right now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's the kind of stuff I love. And then the other kind of stuff I love is people who I maybe wouldn't expect to call. Like there's one person who wrote in and she has a really extreme budget. I don't know if it's a food stamp budget. So, you know, we did a lot of homework to figure out how yeah. to answer that in in a in a careful and respectful way. And so those kinds of like real life questions that give us a little bit of a glimpse uh, into people's realities, those yeah. are what I really love. Well, it's nice to be puttering around the kitchen and listen to other people who are also puttering around their kitchen. And even if they're not the exact same problems, like now I know so much more about beans. (laughs) And that in itself is interesting. (laughs) I mean, even the trends and the questions you get, like I was thinking about the bean questions and how interested we are in beans suddenly and whether there's like wartime mentality, I feel like we're all going through right now. Absolutely. I really wanted to start the show with beans because I do think a lot of people are cooking dry beans for the first time. Mm. And I think in my experience, there have been a lot of people who are underwhelmed or turned off completely by dried beans because they can't get them right or they don't cook all the way evenly or they get stomachache or whatever. And so my obsession with beans goes way back. The very first story I ever pitched that I wanted to write in like 2006 or whatever, Mm -hmm. I just remember going to the editor and being like, beans. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know how to pitch. So I was like, beans. (laughs) 
That's all I said. And they were like, what, what, what about beans? <laughs> and I was like, people don't know how good they are. So right. and I've always, I don't have a tattoo, but if I ever get one, it was always going to be of beans. So I have a deep love yeah. of the bean. It's something that I, I, I cherish the opportunity to spread the gospel on. <laughs> Yeah. The other one that you mentioned earlier is um, bread. <laughs> mm-hmm. First of all, my friends have been cultivating sourdough starters and like passing it around. We live sort of near each other. And so we'll, I love um, it. they've left jars of it outside of our doors and then we're taking care of them like pets, <laughs> it feels like, and updating each other. <laughs> it's good. And when you live alone, you need somebody to live with. Exactly. It's just me and my, and my sourdough starter. <laughs> um, and yeah, we're updating each other on our progress and like the number of people on my Instagram feed who are making your focaccia is just out of control. <laughs> so awesome. And I'm wondering, like, what it, what is the deal with bread? Like, what's the communication? I mean, the thing that I've been thinking is maybe it's the, like, one thing we've always needed the time at home to do. That's what I think it is. Certainly sourdough, it's, I do think it's a little bit like you have a pet. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I really yeah, think sure. so, because it's this thing you have to think about every day. Mm-hmm. And I, like, I just inherited a starter, and I, like, move it around my house, and then I, I told myself I wasn't going to bake all the time. So I put it in the fridge and now I regret that. And then mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's just been a journey. And then and I literally never thought that I would be a person who goes down this rabbit hole because I have so many friends who are really talented bakers. I have people I can call and ask to deliver bread to my house. My friend Josie Baker, who's a great baker in San Francisco, who is the one who helped me develop the focaccia recipe, actually. Mm. He also has his own bakery. You know, I have so much goodwill in the bread world that I just figured there would be no need for me to enter. No need. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) No no need for me to enter. It's fun season. Sorry. (laughs) To enter this thing. You know, I think it's very much about the time that Mm -hmm. we all suddenly have and also about you know, wanting to feel like you're part of what everyone else is doing. Also, like you know, good bread right now is hard to come by. Yeah. And it's iterative, right? It's a process. You don't just make it once and then you know you've made it and it's in your repertoire like there's an assumption that like after you do it once you'll get better and better and then that gives like us some purpose <laughs> every day totally sad way to think about it <laughs> in this incredibly purposeless time <laughs> yeah 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 is there anything that people are asking that you would like to sort of like shout from the rooftops as a rule <laughs> or something that would make their sort of lives easier as they're trying to figure out how to cook in this time Having a plan, um, which every day we can't all have a plan. Plans take energy and time. Mm -hmm. But I will say having a plan for what you're going to do later today or tomorrow is going to make it much easier. So, for example, you know, just to go back to the beans, to soak beans the day before you want to cook them and eat them. Yeah. If I have a craving for hummus, you know, I'm like, okay, that's going to be a couple days away. Like I have to soak my chickpeas and cook that. Like it's a... It's a thing. So I think trying to stay one step ahead and also have different like puzzle pieces ready to go. Uh Oh, my dog is barking. Fava. <laughs> Do you hear her? Yeah. <laughs> Your dog is also named after a bean. Uh, yeah, she's also a bean. <laughs> I tried to give her a big bone and to calm her down. But <laughs> yeah, I think having different like elements. So, for example, when I do have the opportunity to go out, I get chicken bones so I can make chicken stock. And I always feel like chicken stock is insurance. Yeah. I feel like if I have chicken stock, I can make so many things. I can make congee. I can make a million kinds of soup. I can make 
um, spinach and put it in the bottom of my bowl, pour hot chicken stock over it and put a poached egg in there. And that's a really delicious dinner. Mm. I think that chicken stock is a shortcut to a lot of deliciousness. And if you don't eat chicken or if you don't eat meat, you can make veggie stock. But I think having a stock on hand is really helpful. Yeah. I think having um, hard cheese, if you eat cheese to grate, is another way to elevate flavor immediately. Um, I just made a big thing of tomato sauce the other day so that then I can, can combine the chicken stock and tomato sauce into things. I can combine, you know, ch- tomato mm. sauce and rice and make Mexican rice for another pot of beans. I can make shakshuka. I can make, you know, obviously a million kinds of pasta. So I think having different puzzle pieces so that you can put them together in different ways and keep yourself interested is good. I live by myself, which can be problematic if I cook like a whole dish of something and then I feel like I have to eat it for a lot of days. So I've definitely overdosed on the red sauce flavor zone. Yes, me too. (laughs) And I need to switch. I have to switch like parts of the world. So my goal this week is to switch to Korea Mm. and start eating a lot of kimchi and noodles and rice and marinated things and stuff like that. So it's like traveling. It is like traveling. Yeah. And then, you know, it's a commitment. Uh, I think that's just something I'm learning is how to cook smaller quantities of things. I mean, I also I live in a little community where I can I give a lot of food away to my neighbors and stuff. There's a great, great sort of public service that Kenji uh, Lopez Alt did by writing an amazing info sheet on the science of coronavirus and food. Mm. And the possibility of passing it on and like, you know, what we do need to be careful of and what we don't need to worry about. And that's on serious eats. That was greatly helpful to understand that it could be passed by the packaging. Right. Right. But it's it's not going to be passed through the actual food. So I do feel very safe sharing food with my neighbors. That's another way to sort of move through stuff is giving food away, which I do a lot of. Yeah, I find that comforting too, sharing food, even if you can't physically be together. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I actually wanted to talk to you about food as comfort. This weekend, I was rewatching your Netflix show. And um, in the last episode where you're cooking with your mother, that is my favorite part of the show. I guess it's very familiar to me. <laughs> me too. It's very, very funny. <laughs> yeah, it really is. Um, and my family is Armenian and Greek. Um, and the Armenians are feel like very connected to the Iranians. There's a lot of cultural mm-hmm. similarities and food overlaps and a lot of Armenians in Iran. And anyway, mm-hmm. there is this scene of you and your mother making tadig, that rice dish. We have to taste it and see if it is salty like the seawater. And like in that moment, like my mother and my grandmother and my aunts are just like suddenly in that room with you and your mother. Totally. What was that like to film with your mother? Like, was that segment what you wanted it to be? Um, I mean, I definitely think it conveyed the the emotion that I wanted it to convey. And the idea for it honestly came because I had just watched um, this episode of Dave Chang's show, uh, Ugly Delicious, mm-hmm. where he goes home and cooks with his mom, which I thought was the best episode of his whole series. <laughs> He's like, you know, among the greatest chefs in the world and so, so much money and company and all the and million employees and so much respect and all the awards. And he mm. goes home and his mom's like, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> right. And I just knew my mom would really show up for me in that way, too. It's not very strong. Not at all. Apparently, I've been not, doing this wrong not, my whole you're life. You're not frying it. You're just making good crusty tatty. Okay. I knew it wouldn't be without its emotional challenges for me to bring my mom into my work world 
mm-hmm. and um and and do that. But I also was like, I'm willing to make this personal sacrifice because I think <laughs> it will make really good TV. Right. And so and I think it did. And I do think there's like the sort of the love and the annoyance come through. This is saffron you gave me. And that is, I think, universal. Yeah. It's okay. Let's use this as saffron. Yeah, it's good to use it. Using a lot of it is a sign of generosity. That's enough. I don't. I still don't think she fully understands what I do or my role or my place, sort of in this industry or in this world. But mm. um, no, I know she doesn't. In fact, when we were filming, she was kind of like struggling to make sense of the hierarchy on set. I think she just yeah. didn't understand, and she didn't understand what exactly what it was that we were making. By the point we were filming that episode it was pretty deep in the process and I was pretty tightly knit with my crew and there is this kind of I'm I'm not not to say I'm like so into it but there is this kind of hierarchy by necessity on a set and I think it kind of surprised my mom to see me having so much power and so she was really trying to make sense of it and she couldn't really wrap her mind around it and she could tell that the director also had a lot of respect and so in the middle of filming, she just stopped and turned to the director and was like, Caroline? And Caroline said, yes. And, and she said, Caroline, who do you work for? And Caroline said, well, right now I work on this show. You know, and my mom was like, well, what is this show? <laughs> and everyone's jaw was dropping. I was like, mom, it's my show based on my book. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I like threw a tantrum, <laughs> like totally off, obstinate. I was like, oh, you're embarrassing me. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, yeah, there's no way to level that with, with family yet. Mm-hmm. No. Watching that episode this time made me think about connecting around food while being physically isolated. And um, Mm -hmm. I I made this cookbook for my family about eight years ago where I collected um, the family recipes. Oh, that's so awesome. Yeah. And I find myself coming back to it now. Like I'm making Armenian cheddar and kufta and Greek stuffed peppers and lamb. Like that's how I'm interpreting comfort food right Mm -hmm. now. And I think we're all interpreting comfort differently depending on how we were raised. But I'm wondering how you're feeling about what comfort food means right now. You know, whether our cultural connection to food is becoming stronger or that's just something I'm going through. I wish I had a beautiful answer to this. And I don't think you're alone at all because I do think a lot of people are turning back to their childhood food. A lot of people have asked me if I'm cooking Iranian food right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm not really cooking Iranian food because it's really labor intensive and I'm feeling very lazy. So that's one thing. And also, I have my weird way that my body's reacting is I'm actually not that hungry. I I feel definitely drawn to cook because I think that that's a nice way to pass the time. Yeah. But I don't feel that excited to eat much. And there are some days where like I eat a bowl of rice and an egg and then an apple later and that's it. Like, Mm. honestly, I've never had no appetite. I do eat a lot of rice, which has always been my comfort food, but I don't have that really beautiful return to nostalgia and childhood comfort. I I think this is affecting people in a lot of different ways. And this is my weird way. Yeah. Um, How do you feel about the role that you feel like you can play in this time and balancing that with taking care of yourself? I'm struggling with that too. I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, I feel super separate from people in a lot of ways right now. I'm one of very few people in my friend group, I think maybe the only one who lives alone. So I have mm-hmm. that. Yeah. And, and and I'm single. And so there's just there's those things. And then I've also been really depressed for the last several months, just going through sort of the natural sort of downtime after mm. three really heavy years of 
being very busy and very visible. And, and so um, my life in the last few weeks doesn't look so different than my life in the last few months. Yeah. I had been taking a lot of time to myself and gardening and being home and reading and trying to put myself back together. Mm-hmm. What's weird is that I think because I took that time and I was already sort of on this upswing, I feel strangely energized and uh, like ready to be of service right now. Hmm. And so I'm happy to have an opportunity to answer people's questions and, you know, be a source of joy. I think a lot of people look to me for for laughter and joy and lightness. Yeah. And that feels sometimes like a really intense burden, but right now it doesn't. So I'm happy I'm happy to to be a source of that when I can. I mean, that's also why if under any circumstances in a real world, if I were to make a podcast, it would not just be me and a friend making fart jokes for 90 minutes. Like <laughs> it, would, <laughs> it would be, you know, really carefully researched and produced and re-recorded 900 times and edited to, to within an inch of its life. And I had to go through kind of an intense like um, reckoning with my perfectionist self to realize like that's not the right thing for right now. Right. For right now, it's just something silly and light and joyful that that is what people want from us and what people need. That's why also I'm really happy to sort of spread the word and spread calmness and spread in, in information and and um, technique and know-how because I, I feel like it's almost my responsibility to the public to do that. Mm, I love that. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. My last thing I wanted to ask you about um, – you don't need to have answers to these questions. I don't think anyone does. But because this is your world, I'd just love to chat through like whatever's been rolling through your head on how the restaurant industry is going to survive coronavirus. Mm. This is actually a really necessary reckoning in an industry that was already deeply inequitable and unsustainable for mm. the people who do all of the work. And I think that that's just becoming much more visible right now. I mean, literally the people who are keeping this country going are people who get paid $15 an hour or less. You know, the people who are keeping food on our tables are migrant workers who nobody wants to give any rights to, who should be at home under the stay-at-home order. I'm very happy for light to be um, shined upon that. Mm. So I have no idea what could possibly happen. I can't imagine there won't be a federal stimulus package. I still think many, many small restaurants will be affected and, and not be able to reopen. Mm-hmm. You know, I also have heard from people who restaurant having a restaurant is a really hard business. It's an in the best of times you have a five percent profit, you know? Yeah. So it's just a really brutal business and people do not do it for the money. And a lot of people are just stuck in restaurants that they wish they could get out of. So I think this is going to offer a graceful way out for a lot of people, which is a nice thought. Yeah. And the main thing I'm worried about, not only in restaurants, but in all small businesses, is I'm sure here in the Bay Area, things will will be okay, And in places like New York, things will ultimately be okay. Mm -hmm. But in smaller cities and mid-sized cities, I'm worried about large scale consolidation, which is probably going to happen in a lot of industries, which is, you know, the big guys are going to prevail and the small guys are not going to have the resources or energy or wherewithal to come back from this. And so what will happen is like, is every town just going to be filled with red lobsters and, you know, and McDonald's? Even more so than they already are. Yeah, I was on like a MSNBC show. We were supposed to be talking about my podcast, you know, and those those interviews were so like rushed and just two minutes on live TV or whatever. 
And so she, the host, asked one question about the podcast and then pivoted to the restaurant industry, which is not really my industry, right? Like right. I, I'm, I've kind of, for the most part, left it. So I'm an outsider just looking. But here I was suddenly on national live TV trying to like <laughs> talk about this stuff. And and she said, well, if what's one thing regular Americans can do to save their restaurants? And I think what she wanted me to say was order takeout. Right. But I, instead I said, <laughs> I was like, you have to call your representative. <laughs> Yeah. And demand that restaurants are part of a stimulus package. And yeah. so and she did not like that. She just kept asking. She just asked me the same. She's like, but also. But also order a takeout. Even over 10 years ago, the last restaurant I ran, our daily break even amount was $8,000 a day. Right. You have to sell a lot of takeout to make $8,000 a day yeah. to just to pay, be able to pay your rent and pay your employees and stuff. So. I don't think takeout is a sustainable answer for most businesses and most people, mm. but I, that doesn't mean I, I'm not doing it and I don't think we should do it. I just don't think everyone should think like, oh, yeah, takeout, that's going to save our restaurant. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, thank you so much, Samin. This is such oh, a pleasure. thanks for having me. It was such a nice conversation. Yeah. We had so many listeners write in and send audio notes in about like what they've been thinking about culturally through this time. And like almost all of them were about food. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. This is This is a real service to them. So we appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you so much. I wish everyone the best. And um, I hope the constraints lead you to some deliciousness. Lila, <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much for that. I feel like it was the conversation I needed to hear today. <laughs> <laughs> very timely. And actually, very timely. I know we said on the last episode that now is not a good time for self-improvement and, you know, self-optimization is a toxic thing, um, yeah. as we all know. But actually listening to Samin, I did feel, I felt quite inspired to be a bit more experimental and kind of resourceful in my cooking. Interesting. It, the thing is, though, like being resourceful is not really a choice anymore. I think it's actually going to be quite hard for people who are bad cooks not to get better at cooking during this yeah. time because yeah. we have to cook now, you know? Right. I think we'll all come out of this better cooks, which is good. Yeah. No, it is good. And I think in the conversation you mentioned wartime attitudes. For sure. It, it was funny. It kind of reminded me um, of my grandmother who lived through the Second World War and she was a farmer's wife and that was how she cooked. You know, there were always like stocks simmering away on the stove there were pans you know there was always something cooking that's so cool i guess she was that generation cooking under rationing so there was no waste everything got eaten nothing was thrown away and if it was thrown away it was given to an animal to eat you know what i mean it was like completely circular the whole thing yeah i find myself like using dried goods in my cabinets that i just kept keeping for no reason <laughs> and never opening and suddenly like i made black lentils yesterday because i had them mm. That feels kind of good. It makes me feel like we will learn things from this time that we can take with us after, like your grandmother did. And times of crisis have lasting effects. And I think we're often all assuming that this is a horrible time, and it is, and it will all be for the worse. But there's a silver lining if we learn to be better and more self-sufficient cooks, if we learn not to waste, um, mm. you know, if we learn how to nourish ourselves in a way that feels comforting. That all seems valuable. And we can keep that stuff. Yeah, for sure. You know what? <laughs> I also love that her dog is called Father. <laughs> I know. The bean, yeah, the bean theme is strong. <laughs> it Excellent. is strong. I don't know. She's such an interesting character as well, I think. 
I think it's really nice that she's so open about, you know, the fact that she has recently been depressed, um, mm. that she lives alone and how that feels right now um, in this time of isolation. And it's easy to feel like when you've been going into an office every day um, and surrounded by people that suddenly now is like a break from what happened before and that this has been like this painful transition of being very sociable to suddenly being alone. But actually being alone and also loneliness, that's not new for a lot of people. Yeah. And also I really liked what she was saying about, you know, there is a kind of burden in being known as a source of joy and a big personality and having to keep that up and like be that thing to people, you know? It feels very useful. You know, she's become like a star <laughs> mm. in the food world in her own right. I mean, outside of the food world, she's like more a household name. And it's nice to hear people with that visibility being human and grappling with their feelings or reckoning with their roles and inviting us in. Like right now being honest feels helpful. Yeah, it feels necessary. Necessary, yeah. And do we really need Samin Nosrat to be just like the happy, joyful chef version of herself all the time? Like, isn't it maybe <laughs> better for the culture if she's like a whole person publicly and allows us mm. to also be a, a whole, whole yeah. people? We talked to Danny Bowen, the chef um, of Mission Chinese, for a previous episode, and I'll link to it in the show notes. But we talked about how the food world is starting to reject this one version of what a chef should look like. Yes. And I think uh, Samin does that too. I liked hearing her consider what the world could use from her and then whether she's emotionally able or even willing to give that to us. Um, mm. That felt like a moment of realness. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that's so incumbent upon people who have a platform, you know, now more than ever. Yeah. Um, you know what else I really liked about the conversation that you had with her is towards the end when she described this moment as being like a reckoning for the restaurant industry. Mm. And I was thinking that applies to so many industries right now. It's very clear right now that the bulk of the work has been done by the people who are really paid the least. I know. Um, it's on their shoulders in a way that's like completely unfair and insane. Right. It reminded me of this piece, actually, which was published in the FT a couple of weeks ago by Sarah O'Connor, one of the FT's columnists. Yeah, that's a great piece. It's all about how we value low-paid essential workers. So, you know, people who work in care homes and supermarkets and, like, delivery drivers. And these kind of jobs are often very insecure. Um, there's no sick pay. They're physically demanding. They're kind of on the front line. Mm -hmm. And it was a really good piece. We'll put it in the show notes, but... Basically, she points out that in the UK, at least, um, the government, you know, has promised to pay furloughed employees who are doing non-essential jobs 80% of their salaries. And I think it goes up to two and a half grand, um, mm -hmm. you know, which is quite a lot of money to live on. And, you know, obviously that was the right thing to do, Sarah says, because, you know, we have to prevent mass unemployment. But what it does mean is that we're in this strange situation now where, like, some people are being paid more to do nothing than the people who are actually going out and doing essential work and actually have a high chance of getting coronavirus because they're doing that kind of work. Yeah, I, yeah I, it's, it's even worse in the U.S. I saw a tweet from a person who worked at a grocery store who said, like, I don't really need your thanks. Like, I just need $20 an hour. <laughs> Can somebody please mm. just pay me $20 an hour? Um, and more broadly... I hope this time is a catalyst for longer lasting change. I mean, it's easy to be cynical, especially amongst what's becoming an economic recession. But 
This has revealed a lot of things about our societies, including some uncomfortable truths that we should have reckoned with years ago that we've all known and industries have Mm. been built on. And though there's going to be a lot of financial and economic pain, hopefully this also comes with some very necessary restructuring. Yeah, completely. I mean, it's an opportunity for change. Before we go, we want to have a quick look at some of the emails we've gotten from listeners around the world. First up is an email from Ken, who's in Tainan in Taiwan. He basically says that life there feels drastically different from in Europe or America. Mm. Um, He says the only difference he can really feel is that people are wearing face masks on the street. And he says that, you know, other than that, basically things function as normal and people still go to restaurants and cafes if they want to. Wow. It seems so Mm. crazy that there's like a parallel universe where there's coronavirus, but people are still meeting their friends for lunch. (laughs) Yeah. It feels like unthinkable. I know. It's really interesting. I mean, it is a different situation. Taiwan's only had less than 400 cases Mm. um, and only six people have died from coronavirus there. Wow. You know, obviously it's too early at this stage to say, you know, what is a model way for dealing with coronavirus? We don't know that yet. But basically Taiwan responded really early. They did mass testing and mass contact tracing. Mm. They banned travel from China. They wrapped up face mask production. And it seems like all of these kinds of early measures have meant that now there's not the need for the large-scale kind of lockdown that we have. Living there must feel very different. We also received an email from Sue in Nanjing, China. They are now entering the exit strategy phase. Mm. She said, here in Nanjing, things are pretty good. Restaurants are open and we feel super safe. My international school is in week two of phased reopening. Uh, This is about two weeks ago when she emailed. Um, And then she said, there is life on the other side. Which was so nice to hear. (laughs) So nice to hear. Honestly, hearing from um, people in Asian countries is a hopeful reminder that this will end. You know, it's a Mm. long road, but it will end. There are a few interesting pieces in the FT about that. There was one about how even though shops in China are rushing to reopen, customers are still kind of wary about going back to business as usual. So they're getting about half the traffic Mm. uh, that they normally get. I'll put that in the show notes. The FT has actually put a lot of coronavirus reporting outside of the paywall and made it free to read because it's sort of in the public interest. That's all at ft.com slash coronavirus free. We'll put that in the show notes too. We've also had messages about the kind of things that have been getting you all through these strange times. Um, There was one that particularly resonated with me, Lila, from a woman called Violet in London, who says that she's been, quote, imaginary house hunting um, (laughs) on her daily walks, um, which basically just means like subtly having a look into people's houses when you're walking by. All the lights are on. Everyone does it. (laughs) Um, And she says, you know, that this time of lockdown is actually a great time for doing all those things that you've been meaning to do in your house or in your flat, like painting walls or reframing pictures. And she actually recommended this Uh, real estate website called The Modern House for inspiration, which I had a look at and it is pretty good. (laughs) Violet also said that even though gigs on Instagram Live could never beat real life, her favorite so far has been the rapper Sway Lee, who has artificial crowd sounds and has invited fans to join him on stage. So he just invites them into his lives. Yeah, I saw some clips from that. It's really funny, actually. He like really goes for it. Nice. (laughs) 
And we've had lots of other recommendations for things to watch. People seem to be really into Money Heist on Netflix, which is the Spanish thriller that's been trending. Mm. People have been going on virtual dates to far-flung places from Machu Picchu to the Vatican, which is quite creative. Yeah, one person said that um, her friend was meeting up with guys and going on these trips (laughs) into the Vatican together (laughs) virtually. Like a very extravagant date. Why not? Why not? (laughs) We got a really nice recommendation from Paolo in Lisbon. He recommended the filmmaker Pedro Almodovar's Lockdown Diaries, which is basically a column where he's logging uh, what he's been watching, reading, and all those things. So that's in the Spanish newspaper eldiario.es, but there's an English translation on the British Film Institute's website. So we'll link to both. But to kind of see what Pedro Almodovar is recommending is a really cool experience. Um, There's a lot of great films Mm. on there. Paolo also recommended consuming no more than 30 minutes of news a day, and I completely agree. (laughs) Um, Taking things one day at a time and trying to embrace the unexpected, though, of course, that's not easy. No, but I think it's a good goal to have, Absolutely, which is the point. So thank you to everyone who's written in, um, and please keep your voice notes coming. We are busy making a little montage of all of those um, for one of our next episodes. So uh, do send that in if you want to be included. If you like the podcast, the best way you can help the show is to share this with your friends. Um, Share it on your Instagram stories and tag us. We love that, and it really helps the show. You can also leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways that new listeners discover the show. And like we said, you're still in with a shot of winning some beautiful Bose wireless headphones if you fill out our short online survey, uh, which is at ft.com slash culturecallsurvey. Um, And thank you to everyone who's already filled it out. It's been really helpful hearing your feedback on the show. As of next week, we're going to be going out on a Friday, so you can look out for our episodes in your feeds then. We've been Lila Raptopoulos and Griselda Murray-Brown. Culture Call is produced by Lena Prestwood. And our music is composed by Fatum and Tristan Cassell-Delavoie. I'm going to go and eat some bread now. Cool. I'm going to go tend to my starter and then eat bread in four days or however long it takes. (laughs) Uh. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.